When we look out at the night sky, most of the objects we see are points of light that are light years or hundreds or thousands of light years away, the stars within our own galaxy. We can see a few objects beyond that, things like galaxies all their own or globular clusters in the halo of the Milky Way. But we also see objects that are right here in our own backyard, objects within the solar system, not just planets and moons, but asteroids, Kuiper Belt objects, and all sorts of other small to large masses within our solar system. They not only affect us in a tremendous number of ways, but they help us reconstruct the entire story of how our solar system grew up and came to be the way it is. After all, when we look up at what's there now, all we can see are the survivors. How do we know what we know and what are the limits, the frontiers, and how are we pushing them? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. There are all sorts of worlds we could look at. Ocean worlds like Europa, Kuiper Belt objects like Pluto, Eris, Haumea, and Makemake, moons around not only planets, but moons around Kuiper Belt objects. There are asteroids that have traveled through the universe, traveled through the solar system, and even impacted our planet. And here to help us learn about it and untangle all of what we've figured out recently, I'm so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Jessica Noviello. Jessica is a Nexus NASA Postdoctoral Management Program Fellow at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and a fabulous planetary scientist. Jessica, I'm so pleased to have you here and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. This is going to be so much fun. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'm really looking forward to it, too. I'm familiar with some of the work you've done recently. I think it's spectacular, high quality, and I know you have a lot to teach our listeners. But first, there's something I'd like you to teach me. I just uh, finished introducing you as a Nexus NASA Postdoctoral Management Fellow, Management Program Fellow. And, you know, I... I know that a postdoc or someone with a postdoctoral fellowship is someone who's completed their PhD and who is doing normally a two to three year stint uh, somewhere working on a particular research program. Uh, you are a Nexus NASA postdoctoral management program fellow. And I'm curious, uh, what is a management program and how does that work as a postdoc? That is an excellent question. And the reason you have probably not heard about this before is because there aren't actually all that many of us NASA postdoctoral management program fellows. NASA in general has a very robust postdoctoral fellowship program, and that's actually called, in general, the NASA postdoctoral program. So most people who are in their early career, they've just finished up their PhD, or maybe they've done one postdoc before. They go to work at a NASA center, but they go there not as a civil servant, which would be a permanent position, but they go as a NASA postdoctoral program fellow. I am a very specific subtype of that, or at least my job is a subtype of that, where I not only have the research elements that 
people at NASA are pretty famous for doing, but I also have elements of NASA management that are built into my job as well. So I spend half of my time doing science research and the other half doing NASA management events and which is, it kind of depends on the day what that is. Sometimes I'm helping to run a conference or a workshop. Other times I'm developing my own system of of workshops to help get other early career fellowship people um, the professional skill set that they need to get a permanent job somewhere else and I can talk more about that later because that's going to start next week. Um, and then there are other times where my job is just to make sure that the science communication that happens on behalf of Nexus um, is is actually happening. So uh, I should probably define what Nexus is because that is the umbrella where I do all of this work. Yeah, go for it. I know that Nexus is spelled a little weird. It's N-E-X-S-S, where all the letters are capitalized except the X. The X is little, so it's Nexus. Yes, you have to pronounce it with that lowercase x. It's very important. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, the, um, so the point of Nexus is that it's, it's not actually a, a NASA branch at all. It is a research coordination network, which means that there are independently funded groups throughout the United States at different US institutions, and they have all agreed to join this collaborative network so that they can talk to each other a lot more easily than trying to figure out what a lot of different exoplanet groups are doing. That's really cool. That's really cool. So the X, the EX, the big E little X is for exoplanets, of course. And what we're actually talking about is you are you are like synthesizing these different exoplanet groups together to get them all on the same page uh, with a variety of projects and I assume also project proposals. So there proposals happen independent of, of me, actually. Um, I don't help so much with that. But these are teams that are led by <clears throat> very experienced scientists who come in with great ideas and excellent teams. They put together these proposals and these Nexus proposals are gigantic. Most NASA research grants, at least the ones that I know of, end up being somewhere in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it sounds like a lot of money and truly it is, but it's spread out over multiple years. Some of these Nexus and, and even these uh, astrobiology grants in general, they span up into the millions of dollars. So these are, these are enormous grants because there are enormous teams who are doing such amazing, incredible work over five years instead of something like two or three. Uh, of course, this isn't as much as a space mission would actually cost because those can be in the hundreds of millions and even upwards of a billion dollars. But um, remembering the scale of all of these different projects, uh, it's kind of incredible actually what people are able to do when they have the teams behind them and that and that knowledge to just go ahead and attack some of these massive problems that we still have outstanding. Well, let's let's let me ask you an example then. Like what would you say is a big outstanding problem we have that that's a good example of what a nexus uh mission might be? 
I would say the best example of a question that I think every Nexus team is trying to answer is the question of, are we alone? And if we are not alone, then what kinds of signals should we be looking for? And where should we be looking for them? And what kinds of planets should we, or exoplanets should we be looking at? Uh, which ones are the likeliest to support life? And beyond that, intelligent life. So these are common threads that unite all of the Nexus teams. And they're all attacking these questions in different ways based on the team's expertise. But being at this high level, I can see that they all have this drive in common to figure out how rare something like humans on Earth, spacefaring humans on Earth, how unusual are we? You know, that's that's a really big question, and it's a question we've we've talked about a number of times on the podcast with various guests. Um, and one of the things that has always struck me as remarkable is that at least at present, it feels like there are three fundamentally really different approaches to answering the question that that really all work together in concert. One of them is what I think most people think of when they think about searching for intelligent aliens, even though I think that's the least common area of research, and that's uh, through a listening program like SETI, where you're actively monitoring the sky for some way, looking for techno-signatures, looking for signs that there is an intelligent civilization whose signals are out there, they're broadcasting, and we can detect them. Uh, and that's what most people think of. But I think far more common is the approach of what I would say is the exoplanet approach of saying, well, look, um, we're going to have inhabited planets out there, not just habitable or potentially habitable, but inhabited. And on those planets, we might see things like a planet whose continents and oceans are uh, green and brown and ice over and de-ice with the seasons. And we might see uh, changing cloud cover and we might see signs um, in their atmospheres that have uh, these different, you know, I'll say bio hints at this point. Um, so there are all these different ways like transit spectroscopy and direct imaging attempts and uh, looking for signatures of exomoons around giant planets that could be potentially habitable that I, I think a lot of different people in the community are looking at. But I also find it interesting that you can come all the way back here to our own backyard in the solar system when you talk about searches for life and searches for biosignatures because it would be revolutionary if we discovered that you know what we've surveyed all the worlds in our solar system mars venus europa enceladus triton pluto um you know titan anywhere you want to go it would be such a big difference if none of them had life except Earth, that Earth was the only world where life originated in the solar system, or if at some point, whether past or present, there's life any place else where life arose on a world other than our own. And so I think these three things of looking for techno-signatures, looking at exoplanets around stars other than our own, and looking at all the different locations in our solar system that may harbor or may have harbored life, I feel like they all work together. It's true. 
they they do or at least they should i think what ends up happening sometimes is that planetary scientists will talk to other planetary scientists and the geologists will talk to other geologists and then the astronomers and um, especially the stellar astronomers and they will talk to other stellar astronomers and the trick is to make it so that all of these people are talking to each other so that there's a major consensus on what it is that we know what it is we need to know and how we're going to get there you know that's a great plan major consensuses are hard to reach i was talking with a uh, a planetary astronomer um, who refers to himself as a planetary scientist. Um, and I told him of a, a what I would say is a nutso example of gatekeeping, where, um, you know, a, uh, I'll just say a very well-known planetary scientist uh, pointed to an article I wrote where I explained why Pluto was not classified as a planet anymore by astronomers. And uh, in a group that was hostile to that point of view, he said, you know, tell Ethan what you really think about his article here. And someone commented, um, oh, his article is a breath of fresh air. And people piled on this guy. People just piled on him like, well, you know, uh, planetary astronomers or astronomers are the past of planets and now it's planetary scientists and astronomers don't know anything and why would you think you get to tell planetary scientists how to do their job and the guy that they were piling on was Noah Brosh who is the discoverer of Pluto's atmosphere back in 1995 or so he was the one who discovered that Pluto had an atmosphere and measured its thickness and its density and its parameters for the first time and so to me like when you have scientists telling other scientists like well you're not a real scientist and what you what do you know and and the guys like look we're talking about Pluto and I discovered its atmosphere um you know, I think that's a good example that illustrates how hard it is to get people with disparate but passionate points of view to come to a consensus, to even come to the table without, you know, knives and teeth and claws out. It is hard. And I would venture to say that it's difficult on Twitter to have these drawn out conversations with each other because when you're sitting across the table from someone there's no way you're going to be as hostile I think as as when it's just words on a screen so I think there's a little bit of psychology at play here too uh not that I am a psychologist but I'm I'm I would be surprised if there wasn't something else going on but I the the whole is Pluto a planet or not a planet is a surprising to me divide in the community. Um, yeah, I, I'm not and, quite and, sure why. You know, I, I think I think a lot of people feel like whether something gets called a planet or not is an issue of whether they feel other people will feel their field is important or not. Uh, and I don't feel that way. I think that objects are interesting because of the properties they have, not the names that we give to them. But there are a lot of people who felt that Pluto had a special place in the solar system when we called it a planet, and taking that status away from it somehow makes it less important. And 
I don't think that at all. I think the Plutonian system is fascinating, uh, but I probably don't even think the Plutonian system is as fascinating as you do because uh, I've never actually worked on it research-wise, and you have. So when I when I think about Pluto, one of the things that I think is remarkable is that when we sent New Horizons there, we knew that, okay, we have... Uh, we have Charon, this very large moon, which we discovered, you know, about 50, maybe 49 years after we discovered Pluto. And at that time, we knew of no other objects in our solar system beyond Neptune. We just, yeah, I mean, I guess we knew there were comets out there, but we didn't know of any other stable Kuiper Belt objects. Uh, we knew of Pluto, and then the next one we discovered took 49 years, and it was Pluto's moon, Charon. Uh, and then, and Charon's huge, right? Pluto and Charon are they're worlds that orbit each other, where the center of mass is actually outside of the main body. It's actually between Pluto and Charon. If you watch them orbit in space, uh, it looks like two objects making two circles. Charon makes a large circle, Pluto makes a small circle, and they both orbit their center of mass. And then outside of Charon, you have two more moons and then we discovered when new horizons was already on its way to pluto there were two additional moons and i was wondering wow i wonder how many we're going to find when new horizons finally gets there and new horizons got there and we've downloaded all the data from it and guess what those five moons i'll see if i can get them right charon nix sticks hydra and kerberos although i don't think i got the order right uh, I think those are the five moons of Pluto, and that's it. There are no more. Uh, and that was kind of a fascinating find to me, is that the ones we found from Earth with, like, the Hubble Space Telescope, that that's it. That's all that's there. There are no more moons of Pluto. It's just those five. Nope, you got them. <laughs> I've got Sorry, him. I'm I'm like <laughs> Yeah, I, I, is he done? Well, so you <laughs> you worked in particular on uh, on Pluto's moon Charon and um I I would like to just sort of give the floor to you. What what fascinates you about this system and what makes Charon so interesting? I am so glad that you asked. Um, so one small correction before I launch into an explanation is that I have been awarded this grant or, or uh, my team and I have been awarded this grant from NASA to study Sharon in more detail and Sharon or Karen or I've honestly heard it pronounced both ways by experts in the field. So I am not picky about pronunciation, but um, so all I have done is gotten the okay from NASA to to start the research on Sharon that I proposed to do. I have not technically done any of this work yet. I've done some preliminary stuff, but but nothing more than that. So uh, I am happy to explain the the ideas behind why we decided to study Sharon and why we picked that as our target and the kinds of questions that we're going to answer. You should absolutely go for it. You know, when we when we come up to the frontiers of where we are and what we know, uh, learning, well, okay, where are we and what's that next step and how are we going to take it? Uh, I think that's some of the most interesting cutting edge science we can learn about. 
So I will start by asking everybody to try and think back to July 2015 to when the New Horizons mission is doing its flyby of the Pluto system. And it's the first time that we've ever seen these surfaces up close. And truthfully, we did not know what to expect. What we expected as planetary scientists, given that Pluto was relatively small and very far away from the sun, we expected to find a world that was geologically dead. Not much going on, not a whole lot of evidence of any kind of recent geologic activity. And by that, I mean something like volcanism or more specifically cryovolcanism, which means ice volcanism. And I mean, it's pretty much what it sounds like, actually. It's uh, imagine a volcano, in, but instead of molten rock, it's exuding a like a slushy kind of mix of water and ammonia and ice. So we didn't expect any of that at all. And then New Horizons gets to Pluto and it sees so many fascinating geologic landforms that we're still looking at and trying to explain to this day. And one thing that I focused on when I went to uh, look at this system and, oh, I guess I should back up a little bit more and say that my background, my own academic background is primarily in ocean worlds, specifically Europa. That's the one that I wrote my entire PhD dissertation on. But in learning about Europa, it's impossible not to learn about other ocean worlds like Enceladus, which is a moon of Saturn that has the beautiful geysers coming out of the South Pole. Um, but there are so many different ocean worlds in our solar system and technically Earth would be considered an ocean world as well. We often kind of forget that Earth is a planet, but it is, and we need to include it in our discussions of ocean worlds of the solar system. Well, this is this is going to be this is going to get really fascinating. So I, I, I actually want to start by putting you on the spot a little bit because uh, this is actually the first I've heard that scientists didn't expect to find cryovolcanoes on Pluto because. In 2015, if you said the word cryovolcanoes to me, the one world I would have thought of is Triton, is the biggest moon of Neptune. Uh, and Triton, as we now know, is not a moon that formed like the Jovian moons or the large moons of Saturn. Uh, that Triton itself is a captured Kuiper Belt object, and we know this from its oddball orbit. It orbits retrograde and out of the plane, and also there are like no moons of Neptune exterior to Triton. So we know that Triton came in, cleared out the Neptunian system, and formed the stable orbit it has now. Uh, and when Voyager 2, I believe it was in uh, the maybe 1986 or so, uh, when it flew by Neptune, it also flew by Triton, and it took some excellent pictures of of Triton's surface. And we saw that like actually on like the bottom 40% of Triton or so, I think it was close to the Tritonian South Pole, um, you actually saw that there are all of these, uh, I think they're called black smokers, that there are just these, you know, cryovolcanoes erupting and spewing material into Triton's atmosphere and leaving plume trails that you can still see in the images today. Um, and so if Triton 
which was the largest Kuiper Belt object before it got captured by Neptune, has these cryovolcanoes. Why would Pluto, which is the largest Kuiper Belt object left now that Triton has been captured, why would Pluto not have them? All right, now now I'm I'm showing my uh, my relative youth in the field. Where uh, when the initial New Horizons mission was proposed, I mean it launched in 2006. So when it when it was proposed, I am not sure what was known at the time and and what and what they they wrote in that proposal. I only know from things that Alan Stern, who is the lead of the New Horizons mission, has said about it. And he has always been consistent in saying, we thought we were going to a dead planet, that it was so small, um, which is important because small planets or small moons, small small anythings, um, they tend to cool off very quickly. And it has to do with the ratio between the surface area and the volume of an object. So things oh. that are smaller, yeah. So things that are smaller have a higher surface area to volume ratio than something like the earth, which has an enormous amount of volume and a relatively small amount of surface area. So this explains why something like our planet Earth, we still have an active core with a magnetic dynamo that's still forming and still very hot, uh, and we still have a giant magnetosphere protecting our planet from the solar wind. And Mars did, but doesn't anymore, because Mars is much lower in mass, much smaller in radius, and has a very different surface area to volume ratio. It's much more efficient at radiating heat away than Earth is. So Mars got to cool much more quickly all the way down to its core, and it lost its dynamo, which protected its atmosphere, and it had its atmosphere stripped away. And even though Mars had a wet, watery past, perhaps Mars would once be considered an ocean world as well, uh, but today it is not. And so you're saying the same sort of thing should have applied to Pluto. Pluto is much, much, much smaller than Mars. So perhaps the expectation was that Pluto, being the size that it is, would have radiated enough of its heat away and wouldn't have been tidally heated enough by something like even its giant moon Charon uh, to induce uh, that heat in the core uh, so that, no, it should be geologically dead rather than still active. That is that sort of what you're saying the expectation might have been? Yes, and I think that's that's accurate. And again, I don't want to speak for anybody on the team, um, and I am not a member of the team. But from my own understanding and my own expertise, uh, importantly, one thing that the Earth has that most other planets and moons do not have is this source of heat that is still active today. So all all planets and moons and most anything that is spherical in the solar system has already undergone something called a process of differentiation, which is the geologic planet formation process where different layers of a planet get created. So on the Earth, we have the crust and the mantle, the outer core and the inner core. We would call Earth differentiated because it has these layers. There are uh, a couple of objects that are differentiated that aren't planets, and the smallest or one of the best ones that comes to mind is the asteroid Vesta, which is not quite as large as the largest 
former asteroid, now dwarf planet Ceres. Uh, and we should talk about Ceres with cryovolcanism too. But uh, Vesta definitely has a mantle. And we can see it because that mantle has been exposed at its southern core as a result of two gigantic impact events that have left behind craters called Venenea and Rhea Silvia. Well, those are those are mouthful names, but that's also really cool. I know that if we wanted to get down to Earth's mantle, uh, we would have to drill farther than anyone has ever drilled. Like even if we went to where the crust is thinnest at like the bottom of the ocean, we'd still have to drill through that ocean bottom crust for about five kilometers to reach the mantle. And in many cases over continents, you might have to dig down like 60 kilometers through the crust to get to the mantle. But on Vesta, with its low surface gravity, um, and, uh, you know, a single large strike like it has, it has impact craters on it, uh, is actually sufficient to go all the way through the crust and leave the mantle directly exposed. And that's pretty much what we think happened. And what's also very interesting about Vesta is that because of this mantle exposure and because of the unique spectral signature that Vesta has, and I guess a side note is you should ask me to explain spectral if if I need to. But uh, as a result of the unique spectral signature that Vesta has, meteoriticists or people who study meteorites have been able to take specific types of meteorites. And these are called HED meteorites. There's Howardite, Euquite, and Diogenite. And they can actually prove that these meteorites have come from Vesta because they're spectral signatures match up exactly. And it's one of the only places, if not the only place, where we can say, okay, this meteorite came from that asteroid. That's that's awesome, because I had known that we were able to analyze meteorites and identify this one comes from Mars. And we were able to do that, again, through its spectral signatures. And for, for those who don't know, a spectral signature is where you take the light or the measurements from an object, you break it up into their varying wavelengths and you say, okay, this type of atom or this type of molecule or this type of compound is going to emit or absorb light at these specific frequencies. So you can say, oh, it has water ice or it has um, methyl ethyl ether or it has, you know, whatever sort of weird compound you want to look for. And you can also identify the ratios of varying compounds in there. And so that's one of the ways that we can trace the origins of these things. Is that is that exactly how you do it for Vesta and the meteorites that have fell on Earth that meteoriticists have analyzed for their compositions? Yes. So it's a lot of lab work. It's a lot of spectral work, like what you described. It's a lot of chemistry work, too, uh, breaking down these components into their mass elements and running them through mass spectrometers. Um, I don't do this work personally, but I have a lot of friends who do, and uh, they spend hours, days, weeks in the lab just trying to get that one sample correct. It's it's intense work, and I'm I applaud them for doing it. You know, I think it's really funny. This is this is something that uh, my regular listeners will recognize comes up over and over again. That 
we have this uh, view of astronomers, of physicists, of geologists, and, and all sorts of scientists that they know so much about all these broad areas of study. And, uh, you know, although that's true in a sense, almost all of your day-to-day effort as a scientist goes into the minutiae of these projects where you are not looking at the giant forest and the big picture. You are instead looking at this tiny little aspect of the problem that you're working on. And it is vital. It is vital to the success of the project that you do it correctly and scrupulously and in a way that anyone else could reproduce it if they had the same data or tools at their disposal that you have. Uh, And then at the same time, we take someone's entire research and we boil it down to, ah, uh, yes, and this little chunk of rock came from Vesta. The end. <laughs> um, pretty much, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of work that goes into just getting the observations, and then the paper comes out, and it's like, oh, hey, we found this thing. Cool. All right, moving on. It it seems like sometimes it's it's it doesn't get as much of that fanfare as the effort that you've put into it really should. Um, And that's why publishing a paper is a really big deal and should always be celebrated because just to do all of that work and to do it in a way, as you said, is correct and can be trusted and done with the instruments correctly calibrated and tested and and everything done right. That's a lot of work. And I want to to emphasize to all the listeners out there just how much time is spent making sure things are done correctly. Yeah, I remember I in early in my career, I uh, I wrote a paper uh, with some other observational astronomers, and it was my one paper as an observer and not as a theorist. And uh, as I was going through it, every step, I was like, okay, well, how do we know that metallicity should have this effect? And I was like blown away by like, oh, well, we don't. It just sort of makes the data nicer if you do metallicity like this. So it's just purely empirical. Yep, it's just purely empirical. Okay. Uh, And why are we applying this known correlation that works in one regime to this new regime that we're in now uh, that we haven't established the correlation works in? Can we responsibly do that? And, you know, okay, it's explained to me that this is how it's done. And at every step along the way, I felt like, oh, there are some like big questions here that I'm just, I guess, making assumptions about. And I, I understand why they're well justified assumptions, but boy, these come along with uncertainties and these come along with pot potential errors. And they also come along with systematics of, am I calibrating this thing correctly? And then at the end, when you've done all that work, you know, you know how much you worry about your results and how much you trust them, but someone else is just going to go and take that one takeaway and say, oh, like, this is your luminosity function with these uncertainties, or this is how you expect uh, the velocity dispersion to change, or this is how you expect the spectral signature to evolve. And, and that's it. Like, they just want that one takeaway, and they trust that you've done your work correctly. So you really have to. You really have to do your work as responsibly as possible because other people in the field are counting on you. It's true. Um, But you've actually touched on another topic that 
I think is is valuable to address here. Um, and I promise we're going to go back to Sharon eventually. Um, but um, before we we move on, I want to explain just how different it is to do something like a laboratory measurement versus doing the observations of exoplanets. Because when it comes down to a laboratory experiment, you can, or, or a very skilled researcher could get to the most precise measurements of a spectrum, or uh, they can get down to parts per billion or even parts per trillion when it comes down to the, the concentration of different elements within a sample. And that is incredibly precise data. But a lot of times when we're looking at exoplanets, and when I say we, I mean the community of astronomers and planetary scientists who do that kind of work. Uh, when, when we and they look at these exoplanets, many times they're only getting a couple of pixels worth of data. Sometimes it's only one pixel. It's incredible how much information can be pulled out of that one pixel, but it will always have an upper limit because because it's only one pixel. I mean, imagine trying to take a, a picture of your cat with a one pixel camera. You know, you might get a gray blob and and that's it. Could you tell it was a cat? Um, I, I couldn't, although if it had audio, maybe I could. That's a fair point. I, I don't think we have any audio of exoplanets yet, although that would be super cool. All right, all right, I'll, I'll fess up that I'm burned here. I, I got nothing. No, I couldn't tell it was a cat. <laughs> uh, so we we know that these uh, that there are planets here because we can we can see their stars and we can see the star dimming as a planet goes across it. This would be something like a transit uh, observation, and and that's one of many ways that that exoplanets are imaged. But the disconnect, or or at least the the complete difference in precision between doing exoplanet observations and doing laboratory measurements is it's an enormous chasm actually and and getting these two communities these meteoriticists who know what asteroids and planets are made of to talk to exoplanet scientists who are mostly running models on atmospheres to try and figure out what's going on in the in the clouds of these planets so that we can figure out what they're made of and what might be happening on their surfaces it's it's hard sometimes to get them to talk to each other because they come from very different worlds with very different uh, precision rates in their observations and their measurements and this is one of the other things that i am trying to do as the nexus management program fellow is trying to just get them to talk to each other more and to help them understand that there are limits to each other's data, but that both sets of data are important if we want to figure out what's going on on exoplanets. And, and again, if we really want to find life, we need to know how planets work, but we also need to know what planets look like if we can only see one pixel. Yeah, I mean, that that is a fascinating point. It makes me think of the different ways we have of exploring the things, not just in other solar systems, but in our own solar system. You know, we, we have meteorites that fall to Earth from a wide variety of types of asteroids and from some other planets as well. We have... Um, orbiters and landers and rovers. We've started to do sample return missions where we have uh, like Hayabusa and Hayabusa 2 and we have uh, OSIRIS-REx and we have um, the mission that's uh, about to go to Phobos and do a sample return to that. Um, like 
bringing something like material back to earth and being able to analyze it in a lab lets you do so much more with it than even sending an instrument there and being technology limited to whatever you have on site. I know that the moon rocks that the Apollo astronauts brought back, which I guess could be qualified as the first sample return mission to another world, uh, we are still extracting new scientific value from them as our tools and techniques improve because we have the samples here to analyze. And so when you're saying, you know, okay, um, we're doing meteorite analysis here, and then we're trying to apply this to exoplanet observations where we only have one pixel worth of data. Thank goodness for spectroscopy and the ability to break that light up into all its different wavelengths. Um, we can actually learn something from meteorites that's relevant to checking out those exoplanets and looking for you know, potential biosignatures or interesting signatures that tell us about its geological and atmospheric history. Exactly right. And meteorites to exoplanets is only one example. There are parallels to be drawn from every aspect of planetary science and heliophysics and astrophysics. Well, that is a mouthful. So if you like, I can bring it back to an example that you will be very familiar with, uh, which is ocean worlds, right? If we look at something like Europa, uh, which is, I know, your favorite of the ocean worlds, uh, maybe maybe second behind Earth. I don't, I don't know how you feel about that. I'll fess up. Uh, but when we look at something like Europa, and I see the tiger stripes on its surface, and I see the cracks in it, and I, I know that there's, beneath that crust of ice, a big subsurface ocean. When I do the math and I calculate how much Jupiter must be heating it due to tidal forces, and I look at the one Jovian, or the one Galilean satellite that's more inner to Jupiter, uh, Io, and I see the active lava volcanoes and the young surface and the constant resurfacing that happens on Io, I know that Europa is full of heat from tidal forces from Jupiter acting on it. Uh, I can't help but wonder what could be going on in the European oceans? Could there be life uh, by, you know, the equivalent of hydrothermal or geothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean? Could there be something fascinating going on even where sunlight can't reach? Uh, or maybe even at the interface between the subsurface ocean and the ice layers that should exist on top of it? Um, are these the right questions to be asking or are these like pipe dream questions and there are smarter questions to be asking with what we know today? No, these are great questions. Um, one small correction is that the tiger stripes are on Enceladus. Oh, sorry, my cat is, is batting at my microphone. Um, <laughs> the tiger stripes are on Enceladus, not Europa. Oh, I had thought that Europa did have uh, stripy marks on its surface. Am I am I incorrect to call them tiger stripes, or am I incorrect that they exist at all? 
No, tiger stripes are, are what they're called on, on Enceladus, um, but they're a very specific type of feature. It's, it's the tiger stripes. The Europa surface does have lots of ridges and bands and a very specific feature called a cycloid, which is uh, if you imagine a little bunny doing its bunny hops, and then you took the trace of these bunny hops and you put them on the surface, that's kind of what they look like on Europa's surface. They're these curves, they're these semicircles that all connect in a line. So that is a feature that so far is unique to Europa. And that's not the only one that's unique to Europa. Europa is just kind of a weird place that's just marching to the beat of its own drum when it comes to geologic formations. Okay, so when when you know, and I can, if you like, uh, I can, I get to choose an image to put up uh, with this podcast. If you like, uh, I could put an image of Europa up there to show people that these stripes, even though you know, even though it's this icy planet with these uh, reddish stripes, uh, that these are not, in fact, tiger stripes uh, because they they don't make the same pattern that you see on a tiger. They're they're more like circulary, curvy, crisscrossing stripes. Yes. So not all of them are are these cycloids, but uh, but yeah, Europa has these crisscrossing bands pretty much spanning the entire surface from what we can tell. Well, that's pretty cool. How then can we say, okay, if this is what Europa looks like on the outside, uh, what are the prospects we have for life that might be beneath that icy crust? Because it's not like Earth's crust or Earth's oceans that are, you know, relatively thin. We're talking a crust that might be somewhere between one and 200 kilometers thick, aren't we? Like we're talking about an ice crust that is, I mean, it makes Antarctica look like an ice cube. Ooh, okay. This is, this is going to be really fun to talk about now. So we know from observations that the Galileo spacecraft made, uh, there's a lot of Galileos when it comes to the Jovian system. There's the Galilean moons, there's the Galileo satellite, and there's Galileo himself, the man who uh, was the one who discovered that Jupiter had moons. So, Gee, it's almost like he did something important. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> he might have been 400 years ago, but um, yeah, he definitely an important guy. And Galileo was a cool dude. Yeah, um, yeah, you can quote me on that. Galileo was a cool dude. <laughs> awesome. My roommate just heard that and she's laughing, and she's you, you are correct to laugh. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So the Galileo mission, I know, is it's from about 30 years ago, and it was uh, the first, I believe, dedicated mission to Jupiter that got to image uh, the Galilean satellites and uh, Jupiter itself up close. Uh, and although Voyager had both Voyagers had flown by Jupiter previously, uh, Galileo went there and it took some amazing photos that even the Voyager people couldn't have dreamed of, including of Io and Europa, the two innermost Galilean moons. So what's really fascinating about the Galileo mission in general is that looking at all that it sent back is only about 10% of what it should have sent back. So uh, Galileo, the mission, was 
something considered a, a, a data starved mission. What happened is that shortly after the launch of Galileo, the engineers figured out that one of the antennae did not deploy correctly, which means that the amount of data that the mission could send back was severely limited. And through some clever engineering, they were able to get about 10% of the total data that Galileo took. They were able to get only 10% of it back. So looking at all of the pictures that it did return and all of the measurements and all of the information, remembering that it's only about 10% of what that mission actually collected is a very humbling realization. Wow. I mean, I, I think about this like uh, like we're an archaeologist, right? And if I take the uh, coffee cup I have next to me and I smashed it into bits, um, boy, it'd be a lot harder to reconstruct what was that coffee cup if I only had 10% of the shards versus 100% of the shards. And I'm thinking that's that's kind of like what as impressive as what we got from the Galileo mission was, it's... It, it sure does seem like a disappointment when you think about the 90% that didn't come back. It is. And I think it would have helped us answer a lot of questions that we've had since then. But luckily, there will be a flagship mission going out to Europa again, and that's called the Europa Clipper mission. We as a community are very excited to see what it what it will bring back. And uh, I personally cannot wait because I, I have some predictions for what it's going to find. And I, I would like to see um, if those predictions are correct or not. And, you know, whatever happens. Um, but I want to I want to follow up with that question that you asked earlier about biosignatures on Europa and how do we know if life is there or was there or could be there? Because those are good questions. And I want to make sure that we answer those or attempt to anyway. All right, well, how do we do it? All right, so the mission Galileo gave planetary scientists a lot of information, mostly in the form of pictures, but also in the, uh, the scope of magnetometry measurements, which is Europa's magnetic field. Um, so knowing a little bit more about the Jovian system really helps with this question. Europa orbits Jupiter every roughly three and a half days. It's a very quick orbit, and it's also not a perfectly circular orbit. So at some points, Europa is a little bit closer to Jupiter, and at other points, it's a little bit farther away. And this causes that ice shell to flex about plus or minus 30 meters every time it orbits Jupiter. And this is what leads to a lot of heat, or at least what we think leads to a lot of heat. This is what you've been calling this, this tidal flexing or tidal heating. It's this movement of the crust and the solid parts of a planet or a moon as it orbits a more massive source. So we have this, we have this on our own moon, don't we? We see the moon, for example, we see it librate, we see it appear to rock back and forth in its orbit. Um, and although we ex experience the tides that the moon exerts on Earth, uh, the Earth exerts much larger tides on the moon. And uh, as I understand it, even causes moonquakes. That's true. So when you're talking about Europa, and Jupiter, um, you know, 
Europa orbits around Jupiter much more quickly than the moon orbits around Earth, and Jupiter is much more massive than the Earth is, so I would start to think, okay, whatever tides we experience on Earth, uh, give them like, you know, a training montage, and that's how strong they are on the moon, and then give that training montage a bunch of, uh, you know, illegal steroids from America, and that's what's happening on Europa. Pretty much. And for context, Europa is about the size of our own moon. So it's really Earth that would be doing that training montage and getting those steroids to make it so much larger and blow it up into something the size of Jupiter. Nice. I've got Rocky Four going in my head. So tell us, tell us as this as this rocking and flexing occurs, as the ice sheet uh, moves back and forth by by a significant amount, 30 meters is around 100 feet. Um, so it's doing this every few days. It's shifting by this enormous amount. Um, what happens? Can we? Can can this flexing lead to cracking? Can it lead to things welling up from that subsurface ocean to the surface? Is is that even potentially what those stripes that we see on it are evidence of? Those cracks in the surface. That's precisely it, actually. We think that all of that strain and stress from moving back and forth every three and a half days is what leads to not only a lot of cracking and a lot of uh, different features forming on the surface, but we also know that very importantly, it is a major source of heat on Europa as a moon. Heat is one of the ingredients that we think life needs in order to to not only start but to perpetuate. Yeah, I've I've always thought of it as, you know, a lot of people I, I mean like everyone who was a kid, I thought like, oh, the sun is the giver of all life. All life comes from the sun. And as I've gotten older, I've sort of said, well, look, what you really need, what the sun provides and is a good source of is an energy gradient. You need energy to flow from, you know, a hot place to a cold place, from one place to another. And that can come from the sun, but the sun's not the only thing that can do that. So, for example, Europa experiences lots of different differential heating from the sun you know it's europa's tidally locked to jupiter and europa you know spends a lot of its time in the shadow of jupiter on the night side of jupiter so the difference between a daytime temperature and a nighttime temperature on europa has got to be tremendous but that's surface heating and this is talking about interior heating uh which is an entirely different uh, animal? Sure. Entirely different animal because on Europa, we don't expect surface to be that's where life is at. That's where the life process is happening. But under the sea, that's where it goes. That's that's the place to be on Europa for life. I would say so, yes. And I mean, importantly, we should remember that the sun is... I mean, the sun, yes, on Earth, it's the major source of heat that we have. We also have some uh, heat that Earth initially had from differentiating, which is what we talked about earlier. Earth also has a lot of these uh, radioactive nuclides that are in the core that are constantly decaying and therefore supplying more heat to the entire Earth system. And then the fact that Earth is actually quite large is, is also helping retain a lot of that heat. So that works great for Earth. But out in the Jovian system, 
we're only getting about 125th of the sun's energy out there. So the dominant source of heat has to come from something else. And in Europa's case, and actually in Io's case too, and I will say in Ganymede's case, and uh, less so in Callisto's case, which is the most distant of the four Galilean moons, but definitely in Io and Europa, tidal heating is the, it's our, <laughs> it's the sun on Europa is tidal heating if that if that makes sense where it's like the yeah. main source of heat is is that tidal heating yeah that does make sense that does make sense so you're saying look we have this icy crust and that's fine the icy crust is basically like uh you know this is this is just the thing that keeps life inside it's like an eggshell and inside you have all of these processes going on because that's how the energy gets deposited. These tides, they don't just say, like we see the ice sheet flexing and cracking and possibly we'll see uh, liquid water coming through up that ice sheet um, and, you know, making its way to the surface. But the heat is getting distributed all throughout the interior of Europa. And in particular, you're going to have an enormous gradient at the bottom of the ocean because whatever it is that's down there. And I think we have some idea, but I also don't think we know for sure if at the bottom of the ocean is... I don't know if Europa is one of those ice sandwich worlds or if Europa is one of those like, okay, it's ice and then water and then like mantle material down there. You might know. I don't know. So I can tell you what what I think I know, you know, based on, again, based on my expertise, this is what the field is saying and this is what the field thinks we know about Europa. So the entire ice crust um, and I use the word crust a bit loosely because it's made of ice and not rock. Um, so the ice shell layer and the water layer together are a total of 160 kilometers thick. Now we think that the ice shell itself is significantly thinner than that. There are estimates that have ranged from only hundreds of meters to up to 30 kilometers thick. I think over the years, or at least from my understanding, the estimate has gotten much more narrow. I would say now the consensus is it's probably between about 10 to 20 kilometers thick with uh, people arguing for thinner and thicker. But I would think that the average is somewhere within the 10 to 20 kilometer range. So that's how thick the ice shell is, which as you said, pretty astutely is that it's it's pretty much like an eggshell it's not very thick and yet it's doing an excellent job of of keeping all of that water inside to keep the ocean uh, from freezing over there's probably some kind of overturning happening within the ice shell and we know this because the ice shell itself on the surface there are pockets of places where there are large quantities of salt not 100% sure what kind of salt because spectral measurements are um, like we talked about with the Galileo mission and the data starved uh, aspect of it. We know that they're salts, but we don't exactly know what kind of salt they are. Oh, interesting. Can we, uh, can we date the European surface uh, by the um, 
paucity of craters that we find on it? Is there evidence that, you know, if this surface were old, we would expect this level of craters, but what we see is only this other level of craters. And can can we place some sort of meaningful constraints on the age of Europa's surface or how frequently it resurfaces itself based on that? We can actually. So importantly, uh, Europa does not have many craters on it, which already is a sign that something is happening to get rid of all of these craters. And then the big question is, is what and how, how does it work and how often does it happen and all of these other questions. And we can compare Europa to some of the other Galilean satellites, especially Callisto, which again is the most distant of the four Galilean moons, but its surface is it says it's like a pepperoni pizza, you know, where every pepperoni is a crater. It is it is just completely covered with craters. And we know that because all of those craters are there, there has not been any kind of geologic activity that has erased any of those craters. So we look at that and we say, aha, that surface has a lot of craters. That's very old. We look at something like Io, which has a moderate number of craters, and we say, oh, okay, this is actually Actually, it's more on the like lower end side of, of crater numbers because it is volcanically active. So it's constantly spewing out dust and gas and, and oozing out uh, lava so that it too is losing a lot of craters. And we look at Europa, which doesn't have many confirmed craters at all. There are supposed craters and then there are confirmed craters and, and not everything that is circular is a crater. So we we debate that, you know, is, is this a crater or is this just something that looks like a crater? That's a big question in any kind of crater counting analysis. Yeah, there it's amazing on on these different worlds how many things can fool you. I remember I was looking at Mercury data at one point and there was this uh peaked feature on it, like this narrow tall peaked feature and there was this argument going on where some people who worked in planetary science were saying, look at this, there's an extinct volcano on Mercury. And then there's other people saying, no, no way is that an extinct volcano. It's got to be one of those uh, like drips that comes back up after an asteroid, a large asteroid strike occurs. Like that's got to be that little bloop that comes back up, uh, not a volcano. And this was back in in the late 1990s in ancient history, uh, so I don't even know what the resolution there was, but but I, I remember feeling like the crater people probably had it. Ooh, I would have to consult the messenger data for that and all of the paper that came or the papers that came out of that. Uh, so messenger was a mission that went and orbited Mercury. Um, it crashed into Mercury's surface. I want to say in maybe it was 2015 or 16 some it was a few years ago though and it was quite sad but it gave us the best pictures that we've had of mercury so far so i probably yeah that central peak argument in the middle of a crater um so that that bloop is uh is called a central peak and only large craters tend to have it and we're not 100 percent sure how they form yeah, it's pretty cool. Anyway, I'm, t I'm taking us way off track. So when we come to Europa and we say the Europa Clipper mission is coming, and here are some questions we have. What are we going to measure? What 
is Europa Clipper going to measure when it looks at these uh, stripes or these areas where things might be coming up from beneath the ocean, from beneath the crust in the ocean? Uh, what are we going to look for to say, can we see potential uh, bio hints? So I've already talked about heat being one of the ingredients for life. And I'll go through, to answer this question, I think I need to go through the other, um, the other ingredients, or at least what we think are the other ingredients. And sure. one of them is water, which we know Europa has in abundance. It has this ocean underneath this ice shell. It's a very thick ocean. It's, you know, at least 100 kilometers thick, probably more like 140 kilometers thick. So there's there's a lot of water to go around. And to go back to an earlier question that you had, uh, we do think that Europa's ocean is in direct contact with its rocky mantle. So there's some kind of, of water rock interaction under enormous pressure and probably enormous temperatures too. And that, like you said, is driving a lot of this this uh, thermal overturning or something like when there's warm water at the bottom, it wants to rise up and then the cold water comes down and it makes the circulation. So we think that's probably what's going on on Europa. Interesting. So like we have mantle convection within the earth, you're saying it has oceanic convection beneath that icy crust. Yes. Fascinating. And earth too has oceanic convections. It's a big source of different major currents that uh, exist on Earth, like the Gulf Stream or the, the circum-Antarctic current. These are very important for Earth's circulation. And so we look at that, uh, we look at what Earth oceanographers know, and we say, okay, well, if this is happening on Earth, then maybe it can happen on Europa, and this is how we might model it. Uh, one thing we also know about Europa's ocean that is incredibly important is that there are salts in the ocean. Now, remember that I said that there were salts on the surface of Europa. So there's got to be some way that the salts from inside Europa are getting to the outside of Europa. So there has to be some kind of trans material transport system working within not only the ocean, but within Europa's ice shell as well. Well, that's really cool. So what you're saying is, look, if, if whatever was happening on the surface stayed on the surface um, and nothing new was getting added to it, we would say, okay, look, like if you, you're not going to have enough initial salts there to just cause this uh, because the, we know there's overturning and we know there's resurfacing and because we don't have that many craters. So something has to be depositing salt there and that's got to be the subsurface ocean it's got to be the ocean under there it has to be briny it has to be it has to have some type of charged ions in there that get deposited on the surface right there's something that's bringing the salt that was inside and bringing it outside and like you said because europa doesn't have a lot of craters we know that the surface is very young we estimate it's got to be younger than a hundred million years um I can't tell you more specifically than that. And uh, that's pretty specific. You know, when you say, hey, the solar system's almost 5 billion years old and the surface is less than 2% of the age, we, we get to say that's young. It's, it's very young. I mean, it sounds old. Um, I mean, we have dinosaur fossils that are older than that. So um, to think that the surface of Europa is younger than dinosaurs that we have, that's a really cool parallel with our own world and what we, well, 
we, as in life on Earth, was doing at the same time Europa was uh, getting pummeled with, with craters. Yeah, I don't mind saying we. We could talk about our ancestors. Like when Demetrodon was roaming the Earth, uh, the European surface was completely different. There was no European surface today that probably existed back then 230 million years ago. Yeah, I think that is that is accurate. I think maybe on, on like an average kind of kind of scale. Again, uh, we don't know what the entire surface of Europa looks like on a very fine scale because Galileo only sent us back 10%. But we'll learn that, right? We'll we'll learn it. <laughs> yes. So we have we have now the ingredients of life. We have water, we have salts, uh, which are used as nutrients for life. We have a source of heat, and it's a constant source of heat, which is equally as important as having heat in general. Um, and then another thing that is important is time. Time for something like a life form to evolve and maybe die out, but then another one evolves and, and just keep trying until something happens and something sticks. Now, I am not saying by any means, I wanna be very clear on this. I am not saying that Europa is inhabited or that we will definitively find a biosignature because I truly do not know and I don't think anybody knows. But what I can say is that out of all of the places that exist in the solar system, Europa is one of the likeliest spots to find evidence of life outside of Earth. Yeah, I think everyone I've talked to, everyone places Europa in their top 10. Most people place Europa in their top two of like places to look for life within the solar system and and that's that's good enough for me certainly uh when i think about where it could be i think okay there's europa and enceladus and europa has some advantages over enceladus like it's larger it's less water ice it has definitely rocky stuff in there it's closer to jupiter than enceladus is to saturn and it gets uh you know, it gets more heat more constantly. Um, and then, you know, you look at it compared to something like Mars or Venus and you say, okay, like Mars or Venus might be pretty good for ancient life. And there's a chance it might have something there today, although that's, uh, it's based on what I'll just say is dubious evidence. Uh, it's not generally consensus accepted evidence yet. Um, and, you know, Titan, Titan's compelling because it has liquid on its surface. It has lakes and rivers and even waterfalls, but they're methane. And we don't know if methane is quite as good for life as water is. So other than that, you want to go under the sea, under the ice. And of all the places to go, you've got Europa, Enceladus, Pluto, Eris, Triton, um, Europa is the closest one, and Europa is also the one that, that gets that steady source of heat. So I think it's a pretty compelling place to look. And of course, if we knew what we'd find, we'd just go get it. Uh, there's a reason we, we call it discovery and not I already knew this. Right. Um, so that's what the Europa Clipper is going to do. And and it has nine different instruments. Actually, I think maybe eight. I think they've downscoped one. Um, but they're are going to be cameras on it and see i am somebody who uses planetary images to look at surfaces and, and make inferences on what's going on beneath the surface so for me images and these pictures of surfaces that's 
that for me is the most uh, a valuable piece of a mission. Of course, every piece is valuable, but, but we're allowed to have favorites and images for me are, are mine. Um, so I'm excited because most of the images that we do have of Europa, okay, I, I have to choose my words a little bit carefully here. Um, they're not great because <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm so I'm sorry Europa community but but truly the um, a lot of the images that we have of Europa surface they are at we're looking at each individual pixel representing 1.5 kilometers worth of Europa's surface so that's that's the pixel scale for comparison purposes when we look at a picture of Mars sometimes we can get Martian pictures down to like the centimeter per pixel scale, okay? And we're looking at kilometer per pixel scale on most of Europa's surface. We have about 10% of Europa's surface that's imaged at about 230 meters per pixel. So again, centimeters on Mars versus meters and hundreds of meters on Europa. It's, it's a lot harder to know exactly what is happening when the imaging is, is relatively coarse. Yeah, I mean, that's basically saying, like, if I looked at Earth, this is the difference between being able to see, like, here are individual houses, and here are people, and here are their cars, versus, like, oh, you see that little dot over there? That's New York City. You see that little dot over there? That's the island of Sardinia. You see that little, it's, there's a big difference. Yep. And um, this is what we've had to work with. And honestly, we've been working with it really well for the past 30 years since since Galileo sent us this data back. But I am so excited because the Europa Clipper mission is going to get down to, it's going to get something like 90% coverage of Europa at 50 meters per pixel or less. And, and oh, by nice. less, I mean like, or, or, or better. So something like 40 or 30 meters per pixel. And I think it can get down to as much as just meters per pixel, which, um, yeah, we're still gonna get some blur and we're not going to get meters per pixel over all of Europa's surface, but getting from what is kilometers per pixel over 90% of the surface down to 50 meters per pixel is a huge improvement. And it's going to tell us so much more about the surface and, and what's down there and what it looks like and what the different features are and how many there are of different types of features and how closely spaced together they are. And these are things that I looked at. So these are the things I know the most about, but I'm, I'm just excited for the images that are gonna come back. All right. So last and least important question about Europa. How many headlines are we going to have to see about this mission searching for blue whales on Europa? Because at 30 meters per pixel, that's about the only animal you'll be able to see. <laughs> well, if if there are whales on Europa, I don't think we'd be able to see them through the ice. Oh, they'd have to come up to the surface. Yeah, that's exactly what has to happen. <laughs> they can't breathe otherwise, right? Yeah, because obviously they're mammals, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, I seeing something even at the meter per pixel level means that we're not going to be able to go down and, and look for something at the molecular level, which on Europa, we're probably looking at things that are molecular um, life, if there is life. So we would probably look for a lot of, of what they might output. So things like uh, potentially carbon dioxide, if there's a spike that we can't figure out how it got there, unless it was unless it was created by life, then that might be a, an important signature. But uh, the trick of biosignatures is not just what it is. So 
like we point to oxygen a lot of times like oh this planet has oxygen um in its this exoplanet has oxygen in its spectra therefore it is inhabited that must be due to life but that's not always the case because there are many uh abiotic or non-life sources of oxygen on a planet and so you need to know what you might be looking for and then what kind of concentration that biosignature should be in to indicate beyond a reasonable doubt that this is life and not just a very specific and fancy geologic process and i think the work is still being done to figure out exactly what to look for on Europa. But mostly it would be, again, I, I would look for the surface. I think other people will be looking at the spectral measurements to determine exactly what is on Europa's surface beyond just salt, because maybe there's some kind of life product that would have ended up on the surface that could only have been created by life. And if it's there, we would want to find it. There is a radar instrument that's going to be able to penetrate through the ice to determine how thick the ice is in different places and where the ice might be thinner. Maybe there should be a higher concentration of, of life forms, or maybe there wouldn't be because maybe they want to be away from the places where the heat from the ocean is radiating away more quickly. Um, Europa actually also has some plumes, or at least there was evidence of plumes in, I want to say 2017, that was reported based on Hubble telescope data. And I am not sure if Europa Clipper is going to be able to fly through a plume like what Cassini did with, uh, the Cassini mission did with the Enceladus plumes. But if it can fly through a Europan plume, then analyzing the gunk that comes out of Europa for any kind of biosignature, again, any any kind of product that would only have been created by life, that might happen too. So I think it's it's like we're just ready to discover anything and whatever we find will be very heavily scrutinized because we don't want to be the ones who are saying we found life on Europa and then have to take it back two weeks later. Um, science is very careful, especially when the stakes are as high as they are when it comes to finding life outside of Earth. All right. Well, I won't ask you about phosphine on Venus then. And instead, we can move on to uh, what I think of as one of the oddest worlds in the Kuiper Belt, but which I understand is maybe your favorite world in the Kuiper Belt, which is Haumea. Um, so, you know, for someone who does imaging and really gets excited about that, uh, Haumea isn't one of those worlds that we sent a probe to and have spectacular images of, but it's still a, well, I'll just say it's a weird object in its own right. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about it? I can tell you as much as I know, <laughs> which okay. is, um, so yeah, I just went on this whole spiel about how I love looking at images, and you're right, we don't have good images of Haumea. We have some radar measurements, but those radar measurements have actually told us quite a bit about it. So um, Haumea is a Kuiper Belt object. It orbits about uh, 43 AU away from the sun. So Earth is at one AU. This is 43 times as far away from the sun as Earth is. So it's, it's quite far. Um, Haumea is also very odd in that it has two confirmed moons, Haiaka and Namaka. And then it also has a ring system too. So it's, it's got a lot going on considering it's so far away from the sun and it's just this weird object that we can't really see. But what we have been able to see is, is 
I mean, Haumea itself, two moons, and the ring system. That's funny. You mentioned all these features about it, and I don't think you mentioned what I think is the most fascinating one, which is that Haumea is not shaped like a sphere at all. Oh, whoops. I guess I was getting there. Um, <laughs> there are so many cool things about Europa. It's hard to like anticipate who is going to say like, oh, that's the coolest part. Um, because sorry, for sorry. Me, we're on, we're on Haumea now, not Europa. Oh, are you sure about that? Because I'm oh, about to maybe say- I'm not. Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> because Haumea is uh, covered with water ice. Oh. Yeah. So is every Kuiper Belt object, uh-oh, is every Kuiper Belt object except Charon covered in water ice? No. <laughs> Actually, okay. Haumea is, from the ones that we've we've measured, um, I mean, some of them do have water ice on them. That's not uncommon. But for a surface of an object to be upwards of 90% water ice, that is really unheard of, except for Haumea, its moons, its ring system, and a couple of other little objects that are actually associated with Haumea based on their own orbital mechanics. So there's something going on in the Haumea system. Um, And it's, and again, it's just covered with water ice. So all we did was, all I did personally was go from one water world covered with ice to another potential water world that was also covered with ice. So uh, there's a pattern going on here. Um, That's pretty fascinating. Enceladus, by the way, isn't that like 99.9% covered in ice also? And aren't Saturn's rings made almost exclusively of water ice? Yep. Yes, to both of them. So there's, there's clearly something happening where some worlds, all distributed throughout the solar system, can be covered in water ice, but not all of them, even at the same, you know, radial distance from the sun. Right. Not all of them are. Um, it it varies depending on the body. And this is why we look at all of these different bodies, because they are all different. And we want to know why they are different. Why is Haumea covered with water ice, but other Kuiper Belt objects aren't. That's interesting. I want to know that too. Um, Do you think one of the things that I've only recently sort of started to come to accept is that, you know, most of the moons we think of, we think of as Oh, like this probably formed from a circumplanetary disk. Like, you know, most like all of the Galilean moons around Jupiter, they they definitely form from a circumplanetary disk. The big moons around Saturn probably form from a circumplanetary disk. But I don't think you can get these systems that we see around terrestrial planets, these non-giant planets. Um I don't think you can get them the same way. I think the evidence is looking more and more likely from simulations, from compositions. Um, It looks like the systems we see, and this includes the Pluto and its five moon systems, and this maybe even includes Haumea and its rings and its moons, and it includes Earth, we think it includes Mars, um, that if you are a 
rocky or icy world and you have natural satellites, there's a good chance that this formed from an impact. That an impact occurred, it kicked debris up, the debris coalesced gravitationally, uh, maybe it formed a new type of structure we're just learning about called a synestia, and then this coalesced into moons, some of which may have fallen back onto the primary planet and others of which remain there. Um, is this a picture that seems to work for pretty much everything? The Plutonian system, the Martian system, the Earth system, and even the Haumean system? I think with the Mars system, those we think that Phobos and Deimos, which are Mars's moons, we think those are captured asteroids. Interesting. You you are the first one I've talked to in a while who's put that hypothesis out there for them. Um, oh dear! I hope I'm not wrong. Well, it, you wouldn't be wrong. You would just be, you know advocating what I hear is now the second most common hypothesis, uh, because what I had heard is that uh, starting in about 2016 or 17 or so, uh, there was a paper that came out that showed um, that, look, when you look at where Phobos and Deimos are orbiting, the fact that they're so close to Mars, the fact that they're in the same plane, the fact that they orbit prograde, uh, and the fact that Mars has that enormous impact basin on its northern hemisphere, where the whole northern hemisphere is like five kilometers below uh, the elevation of the southern hemisphere, likely means that there was a much larger inner Moore moon and then two further moons that formed farther out, and the inner Moore one fell back, and Phobos and Deimos, you can get simulations to reproduce that. Uh, whereas with captured asteroids, there's really no explanation for why they'd be orbiting in the same plane and prograde um, as opposed to just being orbiting at, you know, random orientations like other captured asteroids do, like Saturn's Phoebe. Um, but, you know, we're, we're all learning here. We don't know. I think this is part of why they're sending a mission to Phobos is because they want to know. If we knew Phobos's composition better, we would probably be able to definitively say, are you a captured asteroid or did you, are you made of the same stuff the outer layers of Mars is made of? Right. Okay. Now that you've said that, I'm like, oh, right. I have heard that. I just, I had it, I had not updated that information in my head. So um, I don't study Don't feel Mars. bad. Don't feel no. bad. This happens to me all the time where I learned something one way, then I hear new information. And for some reason, that first information I heard is always the first thing to come up. Even though I've heard that new information two, three, four, five times, it just... It's not the first thing that comes up, so I, we can blame human brains. <laughs> no, it's um, it's probably too like this. This is a side note, but I personally feel a lot of pressure to you know always be at the top of my game and to always be perfect and saying the right thing exactly the right way. And and I think this is a pressure that a lot of early career scientists feel. Um, some more acutely than others based on their own backgrounds, but it's it's a lot of pressure to feel like you have to be correct all of the time. And I appreciate the moments where I learn something from people who are kind enough to teach me something new. And, and I'm trying to let go of this need to be perfect all the time, this need to like perform perfection all of the time, because it's, it's actually very detrimental. And it 
I think would hold me back more than set me free in that I would be very afraid to try new things. So I don't know know. who else feels that, but it's me. I, I think this is very common because I think that we have not just in science, although it's definitely true in science, but in the greater world in general, um, this idea that we have to be right all the time, that we can't get anything wrong, that if it if we get something wrong or we say something wrong or we say something out of date, it somehow means that like everything we do is not trustworthy anymore, that we lose all our credibility, then that people are going to look at us and say like, oh, yeah, well, back in 2006, Ethan said this and he was wrong. I had a, uh, I won't name names, I had a senior astronomer come up to me uh, at a keynote talk at AAS, and he was the astronomer giving the keynote talk, and I went up to ask him something that he spoke about, uh, and he was very excited to start telling me, oh, you're Ethan Siegel, you wrote blah, blah, blah paper, and I'm like, yeah, I did write that paper, it was part of my uh, PhD dissertation, and he's like, oh, well, guess what, I'm so excited to tell you that I've looked into this, and you're wrong. I'm like, oh, uh, okay, uh, how was I wrong? Like, tell me what I what I got wrong and what we've learned since then. And he, he did, and he told me what we've learned since then. And I said, oh, well, that's great. That's, that's the best kind of way to be wrong, where I said, I expect this thing to happen because I expect this to be the dominant procedure, but it could be these other things could come into play as well. And we went and we got better data, and sure enough that the thing I had listed third turned out to be the dominant procedure and not the thing that I had assumed would dominate. Um, And I didn't feel bad about that at the time, but then I went away and I was like, should I have felt bad? Was he trying to make me feel bad? Why would he come up to me and tell me you're wrong when the thing is like, hey, guess what? We learned something new that that you weren't able to know when you wrote your paper. Um, and then I started realizing, you know what, though? That's his deficiency. That's that's this person's deficiency that that they would look at we learned something new that we didn't know before, and they would say, you're wrong, and that's the worst thing you could be. Um, It's not the worst thing you could be. The worst thing you can do is refuse when you're presented with information that you didn't have, that you can refuse to accept it and assimilate it and change your position to something superior, to something that better fit the data. I feel like that's that's what makes you a a poor scientist not the fact that you took a chance on a hypothesis that didn't match the data but that when the critical data came in you couldn't accept that you were wrong i think i think that's the dividing line between a good scientist and a bad scientist i don't think everyone agrees with me and i think that's part of the you know, the pressure you feel and the the imposter syndrome that you'd feel about like, oh, like if I get this wrong, it means I'm not good. And then if I'm not good, it means I can't do this and people won't respect me and I won't get hired. And like there there are toxic elements there, but but I want to laud you for saying, you know what, I don't know it all. I don't get everything right all the time. And that's okay because like everyone, I have room to grow and learn and expand my own knowledge base and come back 
uh, having done so with a superior understanding of what's going on. Exactly. And I, I mean, I don't think I could have said it better myself, but just this acknowledgement that it's impossible to know everything and that you will be wrong hopefully only some of the time you know you you do want to make sure that the work is done carefully that it's it you have multiple people who are looking at it and giving you feedback on it and whether it's during the actual data acquisition part of the project or it's somebody uh, giving you feedback after you've written up the paper and it's going through the peer review process um, it's definitely important to remember that like nothing this is this is hard because I know that nothing I do is is perfect. But then, like you said, I feel like it has to be perfect or else I won't be respected or people will will at me on Twitter saying like, haha, you were wrong about this. And, and I have to come to to peace internally with with being OK with being wrong. Yeah. And and also, I, I think it's also worth saying it's OK to make peace with I don't have to have a thick skin. I don't have to be immune to what people say. People can say harsh things and they can affect me. That's allowed. That's absolutely allowed. Um, so don't don't feel this pressure either that, you know, when people say, oh, you're wrong, you know, that you have to say like, oh, like, well, you don't affect me at all. It doesn't matter what you think. Like, it's, it's okay to say, look, like, I... I know I was wrong, like I've been shown I was wrong, but I'm doing the thing I'm supposed to, I'm learning from it. You're doing the thing you're not supposed to, which is you're putting someone down for having room to grow. Mm -hmm. It's okay to make mistakes. I have to, I, I tell people younger than me that because I hope that, that if they hear it, that they will believe it. Um, but I have to tell it to myself too, that it is okay to make mistakes. Yeah, and maybe hearing it from me, because uh, at some point uh, a few years ago, I don't know exactly when, but at some point it was pointed out to me that I'm a senior person in the field, and I don't know exactly when that happened, but I'll tell you, I've I've written about three or 4,000 articles since I started doing science writing as a PhD scientist back in 2008, and there are plenty of things where I look back on what I wrote, and I'm like, you know what? I didn't get that right. I got something wrong about that. I, And it's not like, oh, I spelled someone's name wrong, which I also do. But it's like, no, like you, you had the science wrong on that. You said something that was outdated. You said something that no one's thought that for decades. And you know what? That's fine because I'm not an expert in everything and I never will be. I, I like to think I'm always going to have room to grow and learn new things and share what I learn with others and assimilate that. And, and so should everyone. Everyone should be fee free to not know everything about everything, even within their own field, because that's, that's either the case, either you don't know everything or you're lying to yourself because you are too insecure to admit when you're wrong. And um, there are some very, very, very famous titans in the field who had that insecurity their whole life, and it just made them horrible people to be around. So I won't name names, but I will say 
when you encounter someone who can never be wrong, you will know it. And don't let that person and don't let that attitude, um, you know, discourage you from doing things the right way, which, by the way, Jessica, I think you are doing. Thank you. I, I do appreciate that. And and I take this, I feel this big responsibility to be as honest and open with with everyone as I can be about the science that I do, because I recognize that it's paid for with taxpayer dollars. But more than that, I think people are inherently fascinated by all of the things that they don't know. And, and if I knew everything, then why am I doing research? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think it was a comedian, Dara O'Brien, who said, I mean, look, if science was something that came to an end where we knew it all, like it would stop. We would say, oh, yeah, we're done. Science has the answer. Boom, that's the answer. We're done now. That never happens. Every time we learn something more, it's not like we've reached the end of knowledge. We say, okay, well, now what are the new uncertainties? Where's the new frontier? Where have things moved to and what's next? And I think that brings up the last thing we might have time for, which is I just got in the mail my October edition of Sky and Telescope magazine. And on the cover, they have this big feature story about what wiped out the dinosaurs. Now, as far as I know, the consensus story is full of overwhelming robust evidence for it that an asteroid and not a comet, but definitely an asteroid about five to 10 kilometers in size struck the earth about 65 million years ago, created Chicxulub crater in the Yucatan and, you know, filled the skies with ash and led to the most recent great mass extinction, the fifth great mass extinction where all of the non-avian dinosaurs and maybe like 70% of all species on Earth died at the time, uh, creating a lot of unfilled ecological niches, which mammals and birds eventually rose to fill. Um, and yet there are some people who have, you know, tried to bring back the comet hypothesis despite the overwhelming evidence against it. And other people have argued that, oh, well, maybe it was volcanoes and the Deccan traps that actually wiped out the dinosaurs and that the asteroid was just, you know, uh, it just also happened at about the same time. I know that you've done some excellent research demonstrating that it was an asteroid, showing people, reminding people why we know it was an asteroid, what the evidence is for it. Um, for those of us who are maybe new to the field, can you give us the brief recap of how we know it was an asteroid that led to this mass extinction and not a comet, and how we know that it was the impact and not volcanism on the Indian subcontinent that led to the mass extinction. You have touched on what I think is one of my favorite science topics of all time. Um, this, the idea that an asteroid led to the Cretaceous Paleogene mass extinction event, which is the one that happened 65 or 66 million years ago, that's the reason I got into planetary science in the first place. 
So uh, what listeners might not know is that I grew up obsessed with dinosaurs. Um, so I was actually doing paleontology research when I was in high school. And one day I pulled a book off of one of the graduate students shelves um, and I sat down and started reading and it was all about how the idea that an asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs or at least started the mass extinction event uh, it was all about that topic and i just became fascinated with with asteroids like wow these these space bodies wiped out life on earth could it happen again and how did that happen and what did it look like and and all of these questions so that's actually how i got into planetary science so I, it's a very personal science field for me even if i don't do all of the research myself it's something that i still know a lot about and it's something that i i spent a lot of time reading about because i'm personally very interested in it so i can say that the evidence for an asteroid was initially published in 1980. these were the uh, alvarez's right walter and luis yes so there's there's a whole story and i'm not sure i'm going to have time to go into it but i will say that it was um the the alvarez team so it was walter alvarez who was a geologist who is a geologist actually he's uh retired from uc berkeley but he still answers his emails because i've emailed him recently um and his father was luis alvarez who was a nobel prize winning physicist so he definitely knew his stuff and and walter also knew his stuff and and they and a couple of other geochemists from uc berkeley um found and uh the boundary layer between the Cretaceous rocks, which contain dinosaurs, and the Paleogene rocks that do not contain dinosaurs. And this boundary layer is really a thin layer of clay. And this clay is rich in an element called iridium. Iridium is a relatively heavy metal, which means that during the process of Earth's differentiation, remember that word, um, all of that metal would have ended up in the core or close to the core because that heavy metal would have sunk and it's the lighter materials that would have remained on the surface of earth the fact that this iridium concentration in this clay layer about when the dinosaurs disappeared uh, it was at least 30 times as concentrated with iridium as any other rock on earth might be. And I say at least because there are some laboratory estimates that say it might be up to 90 times as concentrated. You don't get that level of concentration unless it's uh, not on Earth, not naturally. So that iridium was initially why everybody started looking for an extraterrestrial origin, because iridium, not common on Earth, but actually pretty common in asteroids, which are the remains of discarded planets that haven't been uh that might not have been fully differentiated and therefore they would have had this this higher concentration of iridium so this paper initially came out in 1980 saying hey here are locations where this clay layer is and we measured it and we find and we find this iridium concentration that's really high and i will say that that observation those laboratory measurements were independently corroborated by another group so all of a sudden there are, there are two groups saying that there's some kind of extraterrestrial origin for the extinction event. 
Now, the big question becomes, well, if there was an asteroid impact event, then where's the crater? And it wasn't until 1991 that the crater itself was discovered. But throughout this entire time between 1980 and 1991, many different ideas came up uh, that might have explained why the crater was gone or an alternative to the impact hypothesis. And, and this is actually where the idea that the Deccan traps, which are in India, um, they were active around the same time the dinosaurs went extinct. So maybe they were responsible or at least partially responsible for some of the, the death of the dinosaurs, or I should say non-avian dinosaurs, because we do know today that birds are direct descendants of dinosaurs, and I would be doing my paleontology friends a huge disservice if I did not specify non-avian dinosaurs. Good job, good job. Yay, okay. Um, so we have this, and again, it's, it, this theory has already been around, or I should say the hypothesis has already been around for a decade, and it's still very much uh, a favored, especially after the crater was officially announced in a 1991 paper led by Alan Hildebrand. And that's the famous Chicxulub that we know today is in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. But I mean, it took a while to find it. And it's amazing that we found it at all, given the amount of resurfacing that happens on the earth between plate tectonics and volcanic structures and, and human development, all kinds of things change the surface of the earth. So fantastic that we found it. Um, and more than that, all of these iridium concentrations, in the beginning, there were only three different sites that were quantified, but now we have hundreds all around the globe of these uh, iridium measurements in this clay layer that separates the Cretaceous rocks from the Paleogene rocks. So it's a very well quantified amount. Sorry, I wanted to ask, do we have enough information about the thickness of the clay layer found worldwide to know if this stuff were all up in the atmosphere? Do we know that it causes like okay like this could definitely block enough sunlight or it could definitely make the air unbreathable or like are there big things that we know this amount of material would have to cause these effects on earth in terms of cooling or lack of food or killing all the plants or you know is there something we can say about that from the sheer amount of material that we find Yes, it would have been an enormous amount of dust and gas that went up into the atmosphere. Um, critically, at the time that the Chicxulub impact happened, the entire Gulf of Mexico region was a shallow carbonate sea. So carbonate is, um, its actual chemical formula is most often calcium carbonate or CaCO3. And all of that CO3, when it was impacted, um, all of these carbonate rocks, it actually vaporized and it turned into CO2 and ozone, which ends up really wrecking the climate of the planet. And uh, I don't know specifics because I'm not an atmospheres person, I'm sorry, but I know it would have been really, really bad um, and <laughs> probably ended the, the dinosaurs or at least dinosaurs disappeared, non-avian dinosaurs disappeared within about 100,000 years. That's terrible. Wow, that's so fast. That's so fast. Like on a geological time scale, something happening in 100,000 years is like in a human lifetime if something happened in like seconds. Pretty much. And 
what gets me about this is that dinosaurs existed on Earth and were the dominant species on Earth for 160 million years. And then and then they're gone, basically in the blink of an eye. And I think a lot of people look at that and they're like, how can one impact event cause this global impact? Or sorry, that was not a pun, but it ended up being a pun. Um, how double how impact? It, I like double it. impact. I think that was a Jackie Chan movie. I have not heard of it. Is it one I should no, watch? No, I'm just kidding. It's, I think it's <laughs> I think it's Van Dam, and I think you should definitely not watch it. Oh, um. okay. It's, <laughs> got it. Um, but yeah, it, the reason that we know it's global is because we find the iridium layer on an almost global scale. We can actually find spherules, which are created in impact events. We can find those uh, very far reaching, not quite global, but you know, thousands and thousands of miles away, we can find little pieces of the impactor and and what it did to the rocks that were there. We can find pieces in Rome and uh, I want to say Turkey and Egypt as well. So it's it's a global, it was certainly a global impact of just where the debris ended up. And the Deccan traps were active around the same time and they might have contributed to the horror that was the Sheik's Lube impact event. I don't know if they were active at precisely the same time. I, th I don't know how fine those error bars are on, on when it was active. But as far as I know, there isn't enough evidence definitively linking the Deccan traps to an actual extinction event. Um, but the Sheik's Lube impact, again, we can know that that's global because we find evidence of it on a global scale and we know how devastating it can be to to see an impact event especially one that was is often colloquially called you know the size of mount everest crashed into the yucatan peninsula and it was a combination of the size and the speed and where it crashed that made it so devastating for for the 70 percent of life that went extinct afterwards yeah wow I mean, this is this is an amazing story every time I hear it. And every time I hear it, it has different details filled in. Uh, just briefly, for everyone who didn't catch it, the iridium, uh, that's like the smoking gun evidence that this was an asteroid and not a comet. Is that correct? Because just like individual objects get differentiated, doesn't the solar system or any solar system when it's first forming doesn't that get differentiated as well, where you get different concentrations of elements at varying distances from the sun, dependent on temperature and other conditions? So asteroids can be very high in iridium. Comets are not. So that if you had a comet of the same energy and an asteroid of the same energy, the iridium concentrations would be dramatically different and the ones we see here on earth in that thin clay layer at the kpg boundary um that's that tells us asteroid not comet and there's really no two ways about it pretty much it's also just an uh sheer volume amount that an asteroid that's 10 kilometers is going to be mostly rock but a comet that's 10 kilometers wide is going to be half rock and half ice. So right off the bat, there's already less iridium in that rock 
of a of a comet or there's there's less to be spread over the world just because there's less of it in the comet itself so uh just looking at the different concentrations and and trying to estimate how fast these objects would have impacted the comet was probably a lot smaller than 10 kilometers and when you take away the fact that half of it is ice and not rock then it really comes down to a very simple game of numbers of the only way to explain the iridium concentrations that we see on earth is to say that it was a mostly rocky body and a mostly rocky space body is called an asteroid there you have it folks asteroid and not a comet and as we all know jessica doesn't know everything but she does know ice so don't doubt her on that Jessica, this has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I can't thank you enough for having it with me and with all our listeners. I should ask you before we go, do you have any final messages you'd like to leave our listeners with? I I would wish for all of the listeners to remember that there is no such thing as a stupid question, that it's most important that you keep asking why and that it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to be wrong. And we should not be mean to other people when they're wrong. And we should not uh, let other people be mean to us because it is how we learn. You know, I think uh, that we're recording this at the end of the summer 2021. That's a timeless message. So thank you for sharing it with us. And thanks to all of you out there for tuning in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donation of our Patreon supporters. And to that end, I'd like to thank everyone who supports us at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to... Chad Marler, Jeffrey David Maricini, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Charles Buchanan, Chris Jakutas, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Stefan Bernegger, Andy Wall, Brian Terry, Danny, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Jerry Wilterding, John Kozura, Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Judith Delmar, Mark Armstrong, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafal Wojcik, Randall Slimak, Sean Foley, Vlad Pashkovsky, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andre Chovanek, Andrew Jason, Arnulfo Zapeta, Benhead, Bob Unger, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Iddings, Christoph Hip. Dan Steelen, Darren Redfern, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nader, Glenn McDavid, Hellbender, Hannah Kahn, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Mike Mays, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Terzakian, Steve Schaber, Tina Talon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Blair, William Vanden Heuvel, and Youngko S. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. 